Have you ever wondered why you're not making a podcast? Maybe because you think it's too hard. Well, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I mean, you're immediately in the podcast game. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So right now, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Just go to A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M and join me on Anchor. Broadcasting from the heart of Cascadia and the edge of the world, welcome to Night Drift, presented by Euphemed. I'm Jim Perry. Thank you for listening to this bonus show. It's Thursday, August 6th, 2020. Tonight, a conversation with writer Carl Abrahamson on his book, A Culture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward. That's right now on this bonus series, Night Drift, presented by Euphemed. I'm looking here at floor-to-ceiling bookshelves behind you of occult books. Oh, my God. Carl, that is a dream room for me. <laughs> it is for me, too. Yeah, I imagine so. You, I mean, you have to have a dream of that for that room to manifest, right? It's an interesting story in the sense that, yeah, of course, since, you know, teenage years, he's buying books and magazines and being a bit of a hoarder in a way, uh, then uh, at certain times in life, you just have to to face the facts and get rid of some stuff. However, um, what it all boils down to is to make the most of it, because if you're not some kind of Marie Kondo, you know, weirdo, <laughs> but on the contrary, a, a maximalist, then you seem need good order and I had the good fortune to to uh, marry a woman who is uh, equally addicted to books uh, oh. but we made uh, custom made bookshelves and that means that you have sort of just more space for shelves because yeah. you go from the actual floor to the ceiling yeah. and we also have like this another wall here oh my gosh yeah That's yeah amazing. so yeah, so we have a lot, but on the other hand, you know, what what can you do? You know, you, you love books and we both work from home and yeah. we work with books and making books and stuff like that. So it's just like a little, um, it's not an office, it's our home, it's our temple. Yeah, you know, just be it's with all encompassing, you know, if yes. you're to go into the, the home of a chef, perhaps you'd expect yeah. them at least have some tools of the trade that represent what they do. Uh, right? One would hope so. You know, you've been involved in a publishing from mm -hmm. the, the ground floor up since probably you can almost remember, right? I mean, you were doing zines, you were hustling zines back in the yeah. early 80s, right? Yeah, Through absolutely. Sort of the, the post-punk movement? Yeah, yeah, I would say so uh, in the in that spirit. Uh, and it started, um, usually when I talk about these things, it's like, you know, it started with my fanzine Lollipop, which was from 1985 to 1987 and then just went rolling. But actually, uh, in already in 1982 and 83, I had another one uh, together with some friends called Splash, and that was all about comics, the comic book artists. And, and uh, that, I think, very much, um, as you would say, sealed the deal for me. You know, this thing of meeting interesting people, talking to them, uh, you know, typing up the interviews, checking the photos. Uh, uh, it was a whole thing. And then, of course, the excitement of putting that into a, a you know, a legible design and stuff like that. It was very, very thrilling. And that, I think, stuck with me. And then, of course, uh, at that time, um, 
I was absolutely uh, heavily into music, but it didn't sort of, I couldn't connect the dots until slightly later, like mid 80s, that wow, I could really have a, a fun scene about music too, because there was a thriving scene in Stockholm. And I was also old enough to go by myself to London, for instance, which I did, and uh, to see bands and talk to bands. And it was just, um, you know, uh, incredibly fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then you made these cheaply produced fan scenes and at concerts, you had your little plastic bag with with copies and tried to to hawk them right. at yeah right, <laughs> at the gigs right. and it was fantastic and this, I, I, that's a huge uh, source of of uh, nostalgia for me yeah. that thing and then it never left you know you know uh, lollipop turned into the fenris wolf fan scene that turned into the fenris wolf book that turned into um in publishing things through the Temple of Psychic Youth Scandinavia and the company Psychic Release and then Looking Glass Press. And then, um, I don't know, uh, just kept on rolling. And now Edda Publishing turned into Trapar, which is the one I have now. So I'm, I'm addicted to making, uh, pub yeah. producing printed matter. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, I mean, so, so you can tell I already resonate and I dig on this topic very much. I have your book sitting right here. <laughs> Good. I like it. It has all sorts of earmarks and, and yeah. little notes and stuff in it because it's fascinating. And it, 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 interestingly enough, I've been following your work for much longer than this, but reading what you have published online. And mm -hmm. so uh, this was a great opportunity to dig into this book. Yeah. And, you know, what, what is fascinating to me and my love affair with them is the capturing of energy that seems mm -hmm. to happen between those pages and even the, the, the sort of substrate touch that you can feel yeah. in your tips. There's a, a relationship that can be built that as so far as digital right now, you know, there is a little bit of a disconnect through a lot of mediums. I think podcasting gets close because there's a there's a sort of an intimate relationship that can be yeah. be built up between listener and and, and host and guest. But, so, but what what would you what would you equate that sort of energy element to this? What what do you think is is going on there? Are we are we containing sort of the soul of some of this art and some of these ideas? Yeah, not not uh, not automatically, but it's certainly connected to to um, let's call it an uh, evocative feeling. Because uh, if we stick with the sort of the core, uh, the written word on paper in a magazine or a book, you know, that's like the core. Uh, no images, nothing, just reading, and then you know, processing uh, either you know consciously, critically, or just you know pleasantly, and um, it's still evokes something in you. It can evoke an emotion or an actual image in your mind uh, or a composite or a reaction that goes, no, what the hell is this bullshit? Or, whoa, that's so beautifully put. Yeah. Meaning it sort of grabs you. Uh, and that's what good writing is. Then, of course, you could read like a you know, a, a manual for a scanner or something. And it's like, it's still writing, but it evokes nothing but pain and frustration. Yeah, right, uh, right, so, right. so this tangible thing, and of course that works also for reading things on the internet, internet but there seems in my mind to be a, a necessary connection with the tangible physical object. Because when you sort of scan a did, the computer screen, you take in the words, but there's something there that's like a veil that mm -hmm. that hinders this um i don't know what to call it but you know this, this evocation that that we all know is very easy if you allow it to come via books and that also goes for comics it also goes for album artworks even mm -hmm. cd artworks mm -hmm. and of yep. course art art books and stuff like that so it's not necessarily with um with the word you know there's something when you hold it and you immerse yourself i think that's mm -hmm. one of the keys that's important immersion and then you allow whatever is presented to evoke something in you. And there we have the, the foundation for uh, human communication, basically. Uh, and that's, I usually say, I mean, some will be critical, but I think, you know, the harnessing of fire was major. That was really major. And, you know, 
kind of an extension of that was like tools and things. But after that, there has been nothing until there was this thing of printing books. Yeah, right. Uh, because it's just basically structuring and practical things. And as they say now, uh, you know, making life easy. That's fair and fine. But there, there was no great like uh, divider like before and after uh, until the... Uh, book came into existence that changed our culture uh, forever and it will always be that way you know the internet and computers it's just extensions of that thing so the proxy what happened is that before we were taught by you know parents and schools and you know clergy uh, all those things and we had to uh, trust them you know, trust them by their magical power of evoking that, you know, in us. And and I guess most of the time it was uh, pretty, um, I don't know, author, authoritarian. It was right. like religious and it was just one truth and stick to this truth and you'll be fine. And that, in a way, it's evo- evocative, but it's also kind of puts the lid on the full-fledged fantasy that you can get when you read yourself. Right. You know, yeah. so I think in a way that if we stick on the religious theme, that that uh, very, very actually magical thing that happened was when uh, Martin Luther, you know, told the Catholic Church to, to fuck off and starting producing mm-hmm. and printing uh, religious works in German in his case. Right. And that took on and, and people could have Bibles in their own language, you know, because that set the proxy dimension aside. And people, of course, I would say became more devout in a true way, like more devoutly religious in the sense that they could, you know, read whatever gobbledygook is in this book and say, oh, this is beautiful. Again, you know, have this thing. And then, of course, uh, when that happened, there was also a much larger dissemination of other works, you know, novels, poetry, uh, scientific studies, critical works, and it, that allowed for, for uh, culture as we know it. So I think it has to do with that. You know, there was once um, face-to-face uh, communication between an elder and uh, someone younger, in, like in teaching. Uh, and that's the wonder of it. You realize, whoa, now I understand what this is about because the elder that I trust told me. And that's the same kind of feeling of amazement that we can get when reading good literature. It takes us somewhere else and evokes this capacity for fantasy and imagination. Uh, it, it's a connection, basically. And... Um, I think uh, it's uh, you know the, one of the most precious things there is in life, yeah. uh, and I don't mean the object as such, but the object uh, facilitates that experience. Sure. You can have it in other ways too. You know, you can be yeah. um, spellbound by nature or or uh, just in meditation. But I think that uh, for me, the contact with the book has always been the most uh, evocative experience. Because yeah. you, you can't set that aside. Even if you're watching the greatest of the great movies, it's still a kind of a passive process because yeah. you don't need to um, be, um, you know, drawn into it. You right. can watch it. and that, right. But with a book, you can't do that. You, it's just a stream of words then. You have to read it and let it enter you. Do you think the the inherent possible magic relationship between book and 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 reader is more powerful in that way than if we if we can say that that artists filmmakers are in some right conducting some sort of sorcery there right mm-hmm. do you feel like authors can be more powerful in this format in this modality Mm-hmm. I would say so, but then you also have to take into consideration, and that's true for the internet, basically all different kinds of media, is is something called competition. <laughs> you know, you have to you have to have a signal that's attractive enough to uh, reach your potential desired uh, listener or reader or watcher sure. or partaker. Uh, and I think that's that's um, it's not a problem. I mean, it's it's a it's a challenge. Uh, some people are very uh, their need for acknowledgement and also knowing that they have the talent, for instance, to write, you know, so if their need for acknowledgement is stronger than their sense of identity or integrity, they will adapt to what the most people will want to mm. uh, read, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily, it's not a bad thing. It can still be evocative, it can still fulfill a function of, for instance, escapism, you know, people read uh, 
cheesy novels, romances, crime novels, uh, whatever. That's all fair and fine. But that's just uh, momentary escapisms, like watching TV in a way. Uh, but if you have someone who has a uh, uh, thinking process and the, the capacity to express that and also filter uh, his or her own ideas or other people's ideas and sort of and make that into an eloquent uh, repackaged thing, then there's really no guarantee that that in itself will be magical enough to attract the readers. You still need the same right. machinery that that the romances and the, the true crime things. And, you know, and you could say that's true for all art forms. Uh, for instance, uh, when I uh, grew up or when I was a young, young adult, I went to film school. Uh, and of course, back then it was all on film and it's kind of lumpy and very expensive. And, you know, um, so I stuck at that time with making little, you know, experimental films on Super 8 because it was something that I could control that was important to me. But today it's a different story. You have inexpensive technology that allows you to, you know, make movies in a very, very inexpensive way and also cheap and fast. And, you know, it's, it's very, very good. But then you get the, the, the disadvantage or the drawback from that. It's, again, competition. Yeah. Because you can say that, you know, oh, it's so great with all of these platforms, but all of these platforms are swamped with basically the same kind of thing, <laughs> same kind of signal. Right. I'm not, I'm not even talking about, you know, TikTok, where every millions of people are dancing in the same way. Right. Uh, but even, you know, stuff with integrity and artistic um, value in a sense still has to compete and that i think sums up very much uh our, the culture that we live in uh it's it's a culture of uh, noise rather than signal yeah. it's a culture of disinformation rather than information uh, and it's really not much we can do about it um if we are you know of an artistic mind meaning uh, neurotic so we have to produce something then then uh, we just do that and hope for the best and of course you can be smart you can use social media or you could get an agent or uh, that's stuff that i'm sort of battling with um every day in a sense because yeah. you want your stuff to be out there and mm -hmm. possibly you know hopefully also uh, expand uh, and that's a it's an interesting interesting challenge but it has nothing to do with the artistic process in itself it's a kind of a superstructure that's imposed and you need it to be able to you know uh, disseminate whatever it is that you're producing yeah. so well, you're, you're speaking like a true diy disaster yeah that, that's that's that's, that's where i'm yeah that's where i'm coming from and I, I don't think i could ever do it in any other way i mean yeah. um right now there's a concrete dilemma for me in the sense that i've always had you know uh, publishing companies and making beautiful books that's been part of it make them nice and beautiful and mm -hmm. high quality and there was always this you know uh, I don't know, scoffing or looking scornfully at print mm. on demand, for instance. Mm. Uh, but now the quality is so good, for instance. So why should I pay for a warehouse and, and you know, freighting stuff to distributors and stuff when I could just have some titles on Amazon and it's all printed regardless if the order comes from Poland or England or the US. Mm. It's just like, bam, a couple of days later they have the book and it looks the same wherever you go. So that, in a way, is an extension of DIY. Now, I can yeah. understand the critics who say that it's just, you know, Amazon milking. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, for me, I think I'm going to go down that route with the, the other books I have, not specifically with my own writing, um, but with some, like the Fenris Wolf, for instance, mm -hmm. I could absolutely oh, I consider that. I'd yeah, but that. It would, thank yeah. you. I mean, I do too, and I could never leave it. But the thing is that when you pay for storage, when you have hundreds of copies that haven't been sold, you know that they will sell, but it takes time and there, there's a cost. Instead, it could be a print-on-demand thing, and people will yeah. be equally happy, yeah. and, and they would uh, basically just make money rather than cost money. So um, we are, in a sense, living in the best of all worlds, uh, but that also entails that there's a huge competition of similarly minded people with a neurotic need for expression. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I found was really interesting in your book was when you started to speak about the relationship between the occult and artistry. Yeah. And what I was wondering is you, 
you said something in here. Uh, you made a suggestion, and that was exchanging terminologies between the traditionally occult and the traditionally artistic to essentially help assimilate potential transformative techniques. Mm -hmm. What do you think the benefits of this could be? And um, how do we start this like today? Well, I think that uh, it will be something that uh, happens by itself because first of all, it's very hard to generalize when you have, for instance, like in... Um, the coming years, maybe there will be 100,000 artists, you know, yeah. whether they're from college or whether they're just freewheeling people. Yeah. You know, let's, let's just stick with that sort of generic sum. And, and then, you know, um, some of them, or maybe, unfortunately, most of them will be, uh, yes, neurotic and creative, but they will be victims of the current discourse. You know, they, ah, when you yes. go to an art school or an art college, you, you, you can't escape that, yeah. you know. Um, and I've seen it so many times in people I've known who have been, you know, super creative and willing to experiment and stuff, but they get caught in this. It's a kind of uh, almost like an academic disease, even in the arts, you know. Uh, so there's this, this discourse that it needs to be, you know, political and it needs to contain this thing and this thing. Whereas in actual fact, no, uh, art should only be about the neurotic persons, uh, the neurotic creative persons, um, a need for acknowledgement and those forms that that takes that's more than enough and that's essentially a really magical thing because it brings that person not only hopefully the acknowledgement that's needed in his or her life but also a sense of catharsis maybe you know that you have this sense of therapy in the process mm -hmm. it, it won't you won't be you know cured or healed by making one painting it's an ongoing process but that's one tie-in where you, those terminologies could be very uh, malleable and, you know, interchanged in the sense that it's a very deeply personal process that has to do with the need of emotional cleansing uh, has to do with the, again, the need for acknowledgement to express and show yourself that, you know, I'm so creative. And those are all basic compensatory uh, psychological needs that most people mm. have. But in the artist, and especially, hopefully, you know, the, the, the artist's mind will also be uh, housed in a creative system, a creative body. Then it becomes interesting because we all know what kind of stuff that sticks and I mean sticks to art history and sticks to culture. It's not the art of discourse. Mm -hmm. It's not the art that's, you know, you have one object and then you can't have it without one, uh, you know, uh, full page of explanation of what it is, right. you know. And that sort of, you know, disenchants and also makes it uh, impotent in a way because there's no magical interaction between the the creator and the partaker you know that's always the in art theory and art history there's always been this this uh, you know uh, critique of uh, you know does art exist independently of the viewer you know or not and i i don't I, I do think that's the case i do think that art has an absolute value regardless if anyone ever, ever sees it, the partakes of it. And that has to do with the original function of art, according to me. It's magical. You know, you make this thing to create a change. And if you know from your magical intuition or your magical schooling that it's better to bury this thing in the ground, it's better to burn this painting or this drawing that will create the change that you're after, mm. then you do that. But then again, you know, what we have, uh, I guess the, the art world suffers from is also, um, it's not only the vanity in terms of the artist, it's also this thing called the art market, you know, where you have another superstructure that, that uh, interferes and says, this is good, this is bad meaning we can sell this, we can't sell that. So uh, it's all arbitrary, it has nothing to do with um, whether it's good or not. However, of course, there can be things that, again, on a DIY le level, let's talk about a band, for instance, that, you know, they, they are so good, they have so much integrity and power, and, you know, they're simply so good. They will have their own 
network of fans and you know they will do their own grassroots promotion and their own records whatever they're doing and that takes off then of course the market will say whoa 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 what's happening here let's take these guys let's offer them a lot of money and you know people are those people are far and few between will say no to you know the system i guess the, the similar thing would be like with technological startups today mm-hmm. you know people who make uh, you know the apps or whatever that's so good and it takes off like wildfire you know do you say no to a billion dollars from microsoft right right i, I don't think so right <laughs> so so it's inherently corrupting and that's very true for the art world uh, too and the the how the art market affects the so-called art world but I think that art is an, um, it's a tricky word, but art is very much an excretion. We associate excretion with something else. But what I mean is that there's something that has to come out right. in order to cleanse the system. Yeah. And we're talking here about the psychic emotional system. And it's done in an aestheticized form uh, so that it can also appeal to others. I would say that in 99% of the so-called you know, normal artists, that's one um, main motivation for them. It's that acknowledgement, saying, mm. I did this. Do you like it? Do you sure. like it? Right. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that, um, that is neither good nor bad. You know, it's just mm. that's the dynamics of that thing. So if there are people who say that, you know, that's great, you know, yeah, great, I'll buy it from you. Oh, no, you're very talented. Or they say that that's just doodling. I don't care. You know, that's still something. You know, when the artist has excreted the thing, whatever the thing is, that feels better for them. Yeah. And they will go on uh, creating because it's just they just have to. Um, Hillary has an interesting comment. Here. Right, H- Hillary is a patron for mm-hmm. Hi, Hillary. Uh, yeah, so you you can see the comment. You can read it if you'd like. Yeah, let's see. Uh, sounds a lot like validating the shadow self. Yes, Hillary, absolutely. That's uh, that's uh, a word that we all like, <laughs> you know, the shadow. And I think, um, but it's not necessarily the shadow. Then, like in the Jungian sense, that it's something that is dark and affects us. Uh, you could uh, call it simply. Um, um, something else that is not so imbued with, like for a shadow is in the darkness in a way, it's the darkness. But you could also say that it's just a, a neurosis in a way. And, and uh, when a neurosis is, you know, you're conscious of the fact that you have a neurosis, then it's not really dangerous. Like a psychosis is something that goes um, from your conscious mind and you don't know what's going on. That would be maybe more uh, of a shadow thing. Uh, but let's call it, it's like um, not an addiction, it's not an affliction, it's not an addiction. There's a word on A that I'm looking for, but it's just uh, this need uh, of um, expression, basically. Mm. And, you know, that's inherently human, too, to express yourself, because how else can we, you know, we can uh, symbolically chit-chat about the weather. That's what it's like at most workplaces, for instance. It's chit-chat. You never really communicate, uh, you know, if it's work-related, and it's, you know, it could be constructive in that sense, but you don't talk about yourself. And that's an inherent human need to communicate about yourself. I guess maybe that's tied to a survival instinct in a way to know in which environment you feel safe and you can trust these different people. And a, a prerequisite for that is that you know each other fairly well. Because, because if you can't trust someone who is completely opposed to what you represent, for instance. So in order to do that, you have to have a clear communication. And I think art does that in an aestheticized and often symbolized form. But that's also the potential of it, because then it can reach more people than simply you and I talking or me saying to Hillary, hi, Hillary, you know, what are you about? Uh, It's something else that goes uh, beyond and deeper than the normal human interaction. And that's what makes it so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for Hillary. And if you ever want to chime in again, please, uh, please do. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, uh, Carl. How far down the road of culture do we have to travel to find occult influences entering into the sphere? 
Well, uh, it's, um, you know, <laughs> I hate when I say, well, that's an interesting question, but it is an interesting question. Uh, and, and I think that um, knowing uh, as much as we do in terms of what, you know, occult history is no longer history, and it's not really occult either anymore mm -hmm. you know because it's all in the mainstream it's all in pop culture whether it's you know harry potter whatever these you know mainstream examples sort of that kind of iconography that kind of um historical connection it's not really mythical it's too shallow so you can't say that it's there's a mythical like the uh, there's no real connection to the archetype of the magician for instance right. it's just for show yeah. uh, but uh, if we know that we are now in a time where everything is super open, uh, there is a lot of signal. But like I said before, it's mainly a culture of noise and mainly a culture, culture of disinformation rather than information. At the same time, though, we have access to all of this information of history. And also, one thing, for instance, uh, that's very important is how uh, the field of occultism and as as it's called esotericism how that has entered it's, it hasn't seeped it has just actually entered academia yeah, so usually the room yeah yeah exactly in in no no longer occult and it's all under under the umbrella of i guess uh, comparative religious studies or religious history it doesn't matter it fits into many it could be an anthropology too uh, but it just fits in there and that's a validation saying that it's no uh, you know, it used to be looked upon as being like these kooky people doing like being either proto-scientists or just, you know, devil worshippers, whatever. But it's just been this enormous influence all through human culture and history since, you know, many thousands of years. I would argue back to uh, shamanic times, you know, when we were really just becoming uh, homo sapiens in a way. Uh, so that's one very important thing in our culture and the other thing uh, like i touched upon is the mainstream aspect all of these things that used to be you know occult or looked down upon as being un hard to understand or evil whatever they are now out in the open you have sort of anton lavey appearing on american horror story well no not anton lavey but the the symbol of anton lavey appearing on american horror story yeah. and so it's like all of these things have been integrated in the mainstream culture then there's the what you could call the actual substantial occult thing and i'm thinking for instance about this it's been written a lot about uh, meme magic uh, on the internet for instance and how that's actively used by you know again it's like you know the good people and the bad people you know it's this dichotomy uh, unfortunately i have to say it's it's uh, visible and tangible uh, in politics and also in sub politics, which is what I'm talking about here, uh, manipulation in you not only express your views, you express your views by uh, kicking on someone else. You know, it's by, again, by noise, it's not by signal. And there, this thing with, with memes, meaning basically textual or uh, images or both, making little sigils in a way, little blasts that defy rational uh, criticism because it's not a message, it's not a signal, it's noise. And it can be cleverly conceived uh, in order to glamorize or piss people off so they forget about what's really going on. Uh, so in that sense, there's a kind of a... I would say that that's a conscious use of magical, one magical technique uh, that has been written about, you know, definitely during the 20th century. And that's this schematic view of how the psyche works. Mm. And, you know, uh, Freud and Jung and sort of that kind of early psychology, they had this schematic view. You know, you have the subconscious and the conscious and the sort of supraconscious. Uh, I think that has to do with a kind of a scientific approach approach to looking yeah. at the world. Uh, but then, of course, there were people like Austin Osman Spare, uh, who was so seminal as a magician, not necessarily with the arcane tradition of working with an order, or as a kind of dusty arcane structure, but a freewheeling guy who had to follow the schematics. Who saw the uh, you know experimental use of the schematic and basically saying, you make this little symbol, in his case, often uh, graphically, you sort of drop it 
into your subconscious in the belief that that will affect you in very beneficial and, and um, synchronistic ways. That was his theory. And I think what's happening now is not people looking to uh, spare specifically but they're looking to chaos magic which was one strain from the 80s and onwards who formulated and reformulated uh, a lot of sparian thinking and you could argue again that you know some memes are very efficient uh, but then again it could also again fail because of the in- insane amount of of uh, noise so if you have a crappy political ad that most people feel is um, absurd for instance because it may be exaggerated uh, advertising psychology will tell you that can actually work you know that's the reason why in the golden days of advertising you had like a, a heavy exposure of one detergent absurdly you know you could have two commercials in the same commercial break you know and people say that's just ridiculous where are they doing that well they're doing that to get that reaction from you which will make it sink in the brand will be you know solidified in your mind so all of these things are very carefully thought out it's nothing really new it's basically advertising psychology and I guess here mixed with some kind of uh, guerrilla approach to how you drop these things in people's sub- subconscious and of course it's evil i would say that that's absolutely some kind of mm. black magic mm. because it's not made for them to grow like flowers and be individuated and become strong people on the contrary they're they're just uh, tools of uh, manipulation and we'll be right back with carl here on night drift presented by Euphemed. Follow Euphemed on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. Cascadia and the edge of the world, Euphemet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. I mean, things that come naturally to my mind, and something I've talked to Gary Lockman about was Pepe, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but and that's fundamentally known as technically a meme. But I think what you're talking about is 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 more memetic, right? It's it's the expression of something that carries that type of power. Is there yeah. something else that you can point to today that like is sort of staring right in our face that we can't understand the underlying value of well i would say that it's uh, we know again from advertising psychology that it's it's all a matter of exposure and the thing is that what used to be you know a critical voice used to be a critical voice but a critical voice today is no longer simply a critical voice it can also be it can also become a voice uh, actually bringing forth the uh, message that it's critical about, you know, and what I'm thinking about is, for instance, the, the huge industry that has happened specifically in the U.S. because, you know, uh, it's a, a U.S., uh, well, it's a problem. I'm thinking about the current government and stuff like that. There's a huge booming industry of, of books about Trump for instance, and they're all very critical, written by super, super uh, intelligent people, investigative journalists. Um, and back in the day, those would be uh, voices of criticism. In a way, they still are, if you look to what's said there. But the mere fact that the name, the brand is uh, bombarded out there in on social media, on TV, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter whether the voice uh, behind the flaunting is critical or not. It has the same effect. It's, it's a mass branding. And that's something that uh, I think that uh, a few you know, so-called normal intellectuals don't really take into account. Uh, And of course, what can you do? You know, if there's something you don't agree with, of course, you have to critique it and you critique it in the way you can. But but I think that I wouldn't over estimate or over-evaluate the marketing strategists of, for instance, the current uh, American government, but I think they are gleefully happy about the fact that it's constantly being mentioned 
these key words, key names are being mentioned all the time mm -hmm. because uh, in their kind of politics, which rarely has anything to do with policies, you know, it rarely has to do with politics. No, it's just yeah. them doing very th things that they find good for them. You know, it's yeah. something completely different. So thereby there is no attachment to, for instance, uh, policies. And I think that's maybe what's happening right now with some uh, Republican people who are very attached. They are true conservatives in the sense that they want to go back to a time where it was connected with policies. Yeah. Uh, and and right. now it's just more like... Um, uh, it's actually like anarchy in a way. It's yeah. a bunch of individuals uh, doing whatever they feel um, that they want to do, and and that's something else. So, but again, to to give current examples, I would say that that's an example, something that sort of backfires in a way, uh, where you use critical, um, uh, intelligent critique, but it backfires simply because of the fact that in the critiquing you have to mention certain names, and it becomes like a spell and that's the antithetical people uh, become uh, unwilling magicians for the for the brand basically mm, yeah right well coming from advertising originally it was sort of the career that i turned my back on to do more mm -hmm. of this work as a creative director i saw that day in and day out mm -hmm. folks participating in spells and unaware of the sort of magical ability inherent within them. Mm -hmm. And I can see that obviously happening within the media structure. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this too is that in addition to the noise, media is also very fractured, right? You have like these sort of micro communities managing their own messaging and their own intents. In that way, it becomes also very anarchic, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, is there a relationship between anarchy and chaos magic in this place where either or can take advantage of the inherent energies? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think some people would argue, yeah, yeah, that's necessary. It's, you know, it thrives in chaos and stuff like that. But if we look at specifically chaos magic as, you know, just one branch of magic, uh, I think it basically I would rather describe it as being uh, very stripped and I mean that in a good sense. It's stripped of uh, too much fluff. It's what you would call hardcore in a sense. Uh, it's not uh, dependent on group structures. It's not dependent on an overt, overtly shared symbolism uh, like much of the arcane occult stuff is. So I would define it as that. It's very like proto uh, not only individualistic, but it's like proto-individual. And I'm sure, you know, some people have get-togethers and stuff uh, too, but it's not really uh, connected to that kind of uh, philosophy traditionally in occultism where you have a group that shares values. So in a sense, you could say that, you know, uh, our culture um, both it, it's very individualistic in a sense you have your life on your social media and that gives you validation uh, but it rarely has uh, anything to do with who you are like uh, you know i hate these quotes but in the real world <laughs> right. uh, right. know, for like, people that will be listening to this he did the quote <laughs> sign Yes, un unwillingly. <laughs> uh, but but uh, what I mean is that uh, we are, uh, of course, composed of many different you know, natures and characters. But if we talk about the solid uh, person who has agency in the outside world and not only in, re in relationship with our computers and our social media, uh, you know, then we realize that yeah, we to a great extent we can be you know uh, alone or uh, individualists and you know uh, pragmatically create our own little universes and bubbles and that's a very beautiful thing. But we also then realize in an easier fashion that we are really not alone. We are dependent of other people in the social structure. Um, you know, for instance, if you live in a town or a city where there are a lot of people um, and they some people bring nourishment and you give them you know money 
for that. And it's just like this constant exchange of things that are necessary for right. our individual survival. However, that's not the case on social media. So you have these, this division in between uh, identities in a way. And of course, if you have the aspect, add the aspect of, of anonymity or, you know, acronyms or pseudonyms or whatever as an online identity, it becomes even more um, mysterious in a way because if you don't even want your like, given name because you say, for instance, no, I want to identify as this or that and that, that's, that's fine. But it's like a different identity. And behind these many, many, many different identities that I would call well, like maybe like Hillary said, they're like shadow uh, identities. Uh, then it's easier to um, be mean. It's easier to spread disinformation. It's easier to, uh, you know, consciously sow uh, bad seed in a way, because most of the time you will get away with it unless there's some kind of rampant hate campaign or something, someone will react and report you. But for the most part, I think the worst, you know, the, the worst possible thing is when there's gradual seeping, a gradual development or a, a making things decrepit gradually, like mm. little termites in a way, by pushing the boundaries. Um, uh, in different online, you know, fora, whatever they uh, they are, uh, because if people are accustomed to there not being any real people <laughs> in the in the tangible agency sense, the outside yeah. sense, and everybody's just like uh, a cool picture that could have been taken from someone else, or it's like a Pepe Le Frog or uh, something. It's something symbolic, but it's not really symbolic of something that you aspire to a higher kind of ideal. As you said, it's usually connected with like a very anarchic approach. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true very much of the young culture today. It's not something that people in like my generation is, is involved in. I think it's something where people grew, they have never been without the internet, for instance. The internet is something that is so right. integrated in their own lives and having constantly being online, constantly being on social media. It's such a, an in, you know, uh, I would say maybe too integrated part in most people's lives that maybe that creates a need for not showing your real self because mm -hmm. it's just you're just too watched you're too right. uh, noticed and then maybe it's easier to check yourself meaning that the normal selves we have we have certain um, shields that protect not only us, but also others. Like in an argument, we don't kill the person in the argument. We have certain things holding us back saying, you know, Ooh, uh, he's an idiot, but it's better that I've, I don't kill him because then I will be in, in trouble. Right. But on the internet, when no one holds you accountable, it's easier to scrape off that varnish of, let's call it civilization or civilized be courteous behavior and just, you know, uh, gurgitate or regurgitate uh, mm -hmm. vile stuff. And that, unfortunately, is, is uh, the environment that affects young people. So yes. politically, that's, you know, that's where you throw in those memes and people will laugh and say, oh, that's a cool meme. But what's really the message behind the mean-spirited thing that's being said? You know, and how does that affect people in terms of uh, voting, for instance? We'll see. Yeah. You know, how, how do we explain this sort of current magical revolution that's happening within our culture right now? Well, I think it's, it's um, obviously uh, it originates not from one source, but I would say in terms of the integration of uh, sort of chaos magical theories uh, that, yeah, it comes from people who have uh, either... Uh, in their writings or the lecturings uh, talked about the merging of a magical uh, worldview, a magical way of looking at the world. And you say that it's not only applicable uh, to um, self-refinement, self-development, self-aggrandizement in a way, 
which has been the traditional thing. You know, that's basically what it's about. You make yourself a, hopefully a better human being so you can, uh, you know, enjoy life more. Um, but you can take the same techniques and apply them on different areas. For instance, look at society as an individual. How do you affect change uh, in any kind of organism? You know, and if you have that kind of... Um, those kinds of goggles on where you look at other things as if they were individuals, then of course you can apply the same kind of techniques or the organism can apply the same kind of techniques mm. on themselves. It could be, for instance, uh, the approach of um, Bhutan, you know, the Himalayan country, which actually has, you know, um, the gross national happiness they, you know, they value and uh, validate that more than the gross national product from a financial point of view. You know, are most of our people happy? What can we do to make them more happy? And that's a real thing. Uh, that's one way, you know, which is very sort of, you know, beneficial and very Buddhist, obviously. Right. And the, the other way could be, you know, how do we, you know, crash this thing? You know, whether how do we crash the deep state? How do we drain the swamp? You know, well, let's just flood uh, the online environments of different kinds with carefully strategized memes that sort of make people keep them busy in fighting and bickering while the real changes are going on around them, but they will never know because they're so busy with the noise. So yeah. that's one thing. You, you know, there are many, many other examples. Like you could take that, for instance, um, uh, Freemasonry, which is uh, not really occult, but it's always been associated with this, you know, the fraternal environment, uh, secrecy, uh, oath swearing. Uh, all it creates very positive bonds for those who are on the inside, but can also lead to actual changes in the outside uh, that are uh, sort of beyond the so-called checks and balances that you have in your um, uh, that you should have in your in your government procedures. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so I think that um, I don't see that as uh, with the current one. I don't see that as uh, a real remnant or a real heritage, yeah. but it's the uh, extra environment. It's an extra esoteric environment that makes the rules. Uh, in environments where they shouldn't be fascinating wow that sounds like a entirely new book right there <laughs> yeah, uh -oh. yeah yeah um, yeah um let's talk a little bit more about your book because i want everyone to check it out um, mm -hmm. where do where would you like people to order this from that's best for you well, the best for me is what's best for them. And I okay. think uh, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, um, uh, endorsing anyone special. I think most people cool. would go to the, the big A or whatever. And they, they can do that if they want to, just to cool. get the book. That's the main message. <laughs> <laughs> but fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, one day I'd like to do an entire conversation with you about the Temple of the Psychic Youth. Yeah. But can you can you briefly because it, I think it's just it seems so integral to your work and your person and their you know the the, the movement if you would now I'm doing the the quote yeah, yeah yeah um it's so powerful to a lot of artists mm. and a lot of occultists and in fact you talk about a, a symbol right perhaps mm. one of the best branded you know sort of logos you know in modern time or something from my perspective as a designer, mm -hmm. how much first, if you can just sort of briefly touch on when you came in contact and what it was and how important to you. Mm -hmm. uh, well, first of all, it was very, very important. And I think uh, I've, you know, um, stated that very clearly in this book and in other things like for instance the most recent book that came out is is uh, one called sacred intent i don't know if you have that mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's um uh, my interviews with jan from 1986 up until 2019 just mm -hmm. before Jen died. So, uh, and that's, you know, uh, not only reflects a uh, great uh, long-term friendship, but it also summarizes a lot of what the Temple of Psychic Youth was about. Um, I came into it 
around 1984. Uh, I was at that time 18 and had been active like in music and consuming a lot of music. And I spe uh, specifically liked like uh, industrial music and also psychic TV. And they had a lot of um, references in their work, but like in the releases or extra papers with information. And you could subscribe uh, to information from uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth in, in England. And I did that from 1984 and on. And I also, there was a concert in Stockholm and a video evening with Psychic Television. Um, and that was great. Uh, and I was just very fascinated by that. And I loved the music and this sort of, this thing, it was a very rich environment, rich with philosophy, rich with theory. It was just uh, uh, stimulating more than just listening to a record. Right. Uh, so it was an evocation on, on many levels, including intellectual. Um, then in 1986, I had my music or uh, culture fanzine called Lollipop. And I had already been in touch with the Temple of Psychic Youth because of my subscription and, you know, buying some things. And, and I asked them, you know, if I come by, uh, can I make an interview with Genesis about Psychic TV, basically? And we set that up. It was no problem. And that was the first time we met in 1986. And I immediately wanted to get involved because I saw it was such a, like a gra beautiful grassroots thing. It was not how I envisioned like a magical order or, you know, some kind of secret occult group. It was just uh, people working together and, and making this wonderful culture that I really liked, you know. So, yeah, I wanted to get involved. And I suggested that, why don't I take this thing to uh, Sweden and to Scandinavia and create this thing called Topi Scan, Topi Scandinavia, which was what I did. And uh, that became what was called an access point, meaning a local address where people could write and get information. And that also meant me and us, those who were involved, producing information of a more local nature including cassettes and records and videos and arranging events and all kinds of things. So it was incredibly creative, uh, totally DIY. Uh, it did grow, you know, uh, to make like real records and CDs and LPs and stuff, but that's just the nature of it if you're diligent. Um, everything was sort of imbued with this philosophy, which was in part Thelema, you know, Crowley's philosophy of will, uh, but it was more up-to-date and contemporary. And it also brought in, and this was a game changer for me, it also brought in culture, not only the yeah. occult, like Crowley and magic and spare and da-da-da. It also brought in, for instance, uh, the... Um, uh, the beatniks, you know, like with Barros and Geisin, who were so like, really seminal mm -hmm. in the sense that they were integrated in the corpus of, of philosophy and attitude and recommended literature. It was very, very uh, important and opened me up to a great many things. Um, so that was... I. I can't, you know, uh, overemphasize how important that was to me. Again, not merely the occult, you know, try this ritual and see what happens. That was a part of it too. But it was also this thing um, that's uh, and kind of an anti-lifestyle lifestyle. Yeah, in the right. Integrated a lot, lot of things. And a lot of those things were sort of, they were not, you know, symmetrically parallel. Yeah. They could be conflicting in between themselves, but they were all logs on the fire that became uh, me and became other people. And, and um, uh, we also did many interesting things. There were like uh, workshops and, and group rituals and uh, joint publications. And in... Uh, 1989, I traveled with uh, Genesis Piorich and, and Paula, his wife at the time, uh, like a Scandinavian tour of spoken word and you know ambient music, and we recorded that stuff in Stockholm. That became the first White Stains album called At Stockholm, uh, etc. And then so you had this thing that it wasn't just some kind of you know sycophantic experience of you know doing what someone told us it was just really really uh intuitive open-minded um 
you know, incredibly uh, creative stew in a way in which other people could uh, throw in ingredients and you, we stirred the pot together and it was just wonderful. Uh, and for me, it became uh, strange. I have no explanation why it ended, but it sort of ended in 1991 uh, after then approximately 10 years of existence. Uh, the guy in America uh, felt that he had had enough. Jen had had enough. I felt I had enough because I was there by then Topi Europe. It had sort of grown in terms of administration mm. uh, and it just uh, folded I think it, it played out uh, whatever was supposed to be manifested had manifested and we just said you know that's it so let's just move on but it's obvious that uh, we all carried on uh, and also in confluence you know merging and being friends and you know still working on things um, up until Jen died for, you know, and this, this book called Sacred Intent uh, is uh, for me, um, you know, uh, we knew that Jen was going to die, but we just hope that let's get it together so that you can get it for Jen's 70th birthday. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what happened. Jen's copies arrived on the, on the 70th birthday. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I don't know, three weeks later, unfortunately it was over. Um, so that is kind of a testament in a way. And we'll see Jen also wrapped up an autobiography that's coming out next year called Non-Binary. Right. That'll be very interesting too, because that will be straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. So I, I again, I can't overemphasize because I've been involved in many, many things, many groups, orders, um, philosophies. Uh, met an incredible amount of interesting people, key players, famous people, infamous people, unknown people um, that have been shaping specifically the occultural environment of uh, the past uh, three decades. Uh, so, but for me, there's really been no one as influential as Jen and it's been not influential by uh, again like some kind of um, sycophantic admiration it's been by uh, practice you know not by theory but by practice and you know making mistakes and acknowledging that and learning from them and just constantly being honest about what you're doing and just the fact that you're doing it and I mean, I would say that I've, to the greatest extent I've been able to, I've uh, pursued the same kind of thing, which is just really, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And it's not a flimsy uh, thing, like in the moment, do I want to watch TV or not? It's more, you know, it's much deeper than that in existential level. And now today I've come to the point where I can live off of the things that I'm creating. And it took a whole long time. And I, you know, I had to do other things too, but I never wanted to compromise with this thing that, you know, one day it will be a, um, not clean, but it will be a pure uh, existence based on the least possible noise from mm -hmm. the outside. You know, and, and I think that's the very, very uh, valuable lesson that I got from Jan. Just like stick with it and be honest and everything will be fine. Yeah. Well, that's that's beautiful. And I think yeah. a lot of people, in, in my opinion, are going to be rediscovering mm -hmm. uh, the, the temple and um, engaging with it in a probably in a brand new way. Because guess mm -hmm. what? It, it does seem inclusive to a lot of folks that maybe would be turned off from someone like Crowley, for example. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it has to do with the fact that it's, it's, uh, it's the message that's the important thing and how you can apply that. And it's not, it's inclusive, but it's not demanding. You know, yeah. it's not, there's no hierarchical structure. We have to go through these initiations and stuff like that. It's really, you know, uh, truly thalamic in that sense. Like just yeah. do, do what you want. And if you want to do it, under the, the umbrella of the Temple of Psychic Youth. You just have to be, you know, again, honest and, and see what you're doing. And, and uh, if you want to commune with other people under this umbrella, uh, feel free. It's not what it once was, but it's still some kind of energy that's just continually uh, malleable and moving and, and morphing. And it's just a beautiful thing. And it's, it's really, uh, it's a tricky word, but it is a magical uh, process. It, it's uh, inexplicable in a way, and it probably should remain inexplicable, not because of some glamorizing potential, but simply because of the fact that that proves that it's pure. 
you know, it pures, proves that it's, it's correct. It doesn't get uh, marketed. It doesn't get pinned down. It doesn't get uh, commodified. It doesn't get uh, diluted. It's just uh, what it is. And I think, uh, again, you know, I want to recommend that book, Sacred Intent, that we worked on since the year 2000. We had done interviews before that. But in the year 2000, when we were in Nepal, we said that let's start making regular interviews and collect them in book form someday. And we did that in, in many parts of the world. And it sort of uh, sums up Jen's uh, development in thinking, in acting, in identity. Um, and it's, uh, it's, of course, it's like an incredible trip. So I would recommend that, Sacred Intent. Fantastic. Sacred Intent, a culture the unseen forces that drive culture forward. Where can everyone find more of you on social and likewise? Right. Um, this, um, there are two main stops, I'd say. Uh, one is my own website, which is carlabrahamson.com. Carl with a C and Abrahamson with two S's. And the other is the Patreon uh, that I have with my wife. That's basically our social media hub. That's where people get the most uh, and it's uh, patreon.com um, slash Vanessa 23 Carl Vanessa 23 Carl um, and uh, from there whatever people are interested in you know whether it's my films or the publishing or the music they'll, they'll find it through those hubs fantastic Carl I hope this is the first of many conversations my friend this has been great yeah Absolutely. Thank you, Carl. Okay. Have a great day, my friend. Take care. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Night Drift, presented by Ufamed. Thank you to our guest, Carl Abrahamson, as well as our sponsors, Spotify and Anchor. For more of Carl's work, you can find that right now in our show notes. To be a part of our next live Zoom interview, join us on Patreon. It's $5 per month and includes access to Euphemet the Original Series and much more. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, our short film series with Carl Pfeiffer of Hellier, merchandise and links to all of our social media, visit euphemet.com. And again, thank you for listening. This is Jim Perry, and until next time, keep looking up. Follow Euphemet on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. 